Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this morning, we're going to have a, begin a new study in 1 Corinthians. We need to make sure we're in fellowship. It's always important to make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord before we study His Word, because it is God the Holy Spirit who teaches us. His Word helps us to understand it, stores it in our soul for recall in times of application. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word today, to live in a nation where we have the freedom to gather together, study your word freely and openly. Father, we continue to pray for our nation and for our president, for members of Congress, for military leaders, for those who are making policy that they would have wisdom, that they would have the right information they need to make good decisions, and that you would be with the men in the military men and women in the military who are serving uh, overseas, that you would uh, particularly watch over them, give them wisdom and skill as they go after the enemy. Father, now as we study your word, we pray that we may be refreshed by our study of your word, that we might gain greater insight into what you have provided for us with our great salvation, and that we might be challenged and encouraged to press on to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I know some of you have some questions and want to know how things went when I was over in Ukraine for uh, three weeks. It seems like it's been with the cancellation of class last week due to the uh, snow and ice Sunday morning. Uh, It seems like it's been a month. It probably has been a month since I was up here. And it was a great trip. It was really good. Jim Myers is doing a fantastic job over there. And I will give a more detailed report next Sunday, second hour. Uh, was going to do it this Sunday, but with communion this Sunday, it's just too much to try to cram it all in into one hour. So we'll wait until next week to give a report on the uh, trip to Ukraine. Incidentally, Jim is going to be back on sabbatical this summer for about four months. And we'll be up here for at least a week. So uh, that way everybody can get to know him a little better. Open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Corinthians. Well, we're going to begin our study of 1 Corinthians, but we're not going to start there. We're going to start in Acts chapter 18. So open your Bibles to Acts 18 for background on 
Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. This is going to be a fascinating study because Corinthians, more than any other epistle in the New Testament, is written to address problems. It's written to one of the most screwed up congregations, one of the most carnal congregations, one of the most out-of-fellowship congregations that possibly has ever existed. I can't imagine any problem uh, existing in a local church that wasn't already exhibited by the Corinthians. I just can't imagine how anybody can possibly believe in something like lordship salvation after they address, go through an epistle like 1 Corinthians. But it's amazing the logical leaps that people make just because they don't really want to admit the fact that Christians can be even more sinful and worldly than unbelievers. But this is exactly the picture we get at Corinth, and it's a fantastic illustration of just how the world system and the thinking of the culture around us can so dominate our thinking if we don't straighten it out with the Word of God that we just keep living and acting like everybody around us. Paul first came to Corinth in approximately 51 A.D. We know that date is pretty sure because Gallio was the proconsul there, and that date is pretty pretty secure. Now, on the overhead, we've got a map of uh, the ancient world of Greece on the left. Here is Greece here and uh, Asia Minor over here to the right. And on Paul's second missionary journey, he uh, came to Athens where he had a very small response, and then he headed almost due west across the uh, Isthmus of Corinth, which is located right there. You can barely see it here on this map. And then just on the other side of the Isthmus of Corinth is where the ancient city of Corinth was established. Now, when we come to Acts 18, we come to the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. And Paul, what took place when Paul came to Corinth and established the church there. Now, Acts was written by Luke, and Luke's major point in writing Acts is to explain the expansion of the church into the Gentile world, that as the Holy Spirit has come upon the apostles on the day of Pentecost, that he is establishing a new work, that the church is distinct from Israel, and the church is going to incorporate both the Jew and Gentiles into a new body, the body of Christ, where Jew and Gentile distinctions are no longer relevant. So he is explaining the expansion of Christianity to the Gentile world and through the three missionary journeys of Paul. And a second thing that he brings out, especially in this chapter, is that Christianity is uh, a legitimate religion. Now, remember, he's writing mostly to a uh, Roman. He's writing to Theophilus, again, who's either Roman or Greek. It's hard to tell. We know very little about who Theophilus was. But he's establishing the legitimacy of Christianity. And this is established because in this particular chapter because there will be a court case involving the legitimacy of what Paul is doing. The Jews in jealousy are going to take him to court, and it's basically going to be thrown out of court. And there's a certain amount of irony here from the Holy Spirit because of all the places in the ancient world. It's the Roman court in Corinth 
where the legal status of Christianity is first established. Now, this isn't going to hold a lot of precedence as time goes on because it will not be granted true legal status in uh, the Roman Empire until after Constantine's conversion about 300 A.D. So uh, this is just a way of protecting the gospel at this particular point in time uh, in the early stages around the middle of the first century. Now, Paul came down the Greek peninsula. He had crossed over. He had gone to Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, up in the northern part of, uh, of Greece, and then he headed down to Athens where he was met with an extremely lukewarm uh, response. And when Paul left Athens, we get a sense that he was a bit discouraged because of the lack of response in, Corinth, in uh, Athens, and he heads to Corinth, which is sort of the sin city of the ancient world, sort of a combination of Los Angeles, Las Vegas, and New York all rolled into one. That is a major port city. As you can tell looking at the map, there is a, an inlet here to the kind of southeast and then one to the northwest, and there's this six-mile land bridge between the, this is the Peloponnesian Peninsula here. There's a six-mile across land bridge here at the Isthmus of Corinth. And back in the early day, in the ancient world, about, the, uh, about 300 B.C., they built a road that went from one bay to the other in order for ships that they could pull in on the east and un- offload their cargo and, t- and haul it across that six-mile road and put it on another ship and take it out the other way because if you sailed around the, the uh, coast down here, there were tremendous number of storms that, that were too violent for ships of the ancient world to handle, and it was extremely dangerous, so they would rather uh, take it across the Isthmus of Corinth. Well, that meant, of course, that this is a major trade route and you've got all these sailors from all over the world, from Egypt, North Africa, Carthage, Phoenicia, uh, Israel, uh, coming across from Asia Minor, coming down from the Black Sea and, and the Scythians up in the north. So you had all of these people coming in from the east, and then you had all of the Romans and Latins, Carthaginians, uh, others coming from over in the area of Spain and Gaul, coming in from that direction. So east met west at Corinth. And when all of these sailors and all of these folks came from all over the world, they of course brought with them their various gods and goddesses and religions. So there was just a little bit of everything going on in Corinth. And Corinth had a wild reputation in its early years. Now, the history of Corinth is really divided into into, into two stages. The early city ended in um, 150 B.C. Corinth had Flourished during the Golden Age of Greece during 5th century B.C. And by the second, uh, from about 200 to 150 B.C., it was the leader of the Achaean League. Now, Achaeus is another name for Greece. And this this, um, entire area down here is the, the region of Achaea. And... Corinth became the leader of this consortium of cities, a trade, uh, an alliance for trade, and uh, they got involved in a war in about 150 B.C. with Sparta. 
Now, the problem with that was Sparta had an alliance with Rome. So as soon as Corinth went to war with Sparta, Sparta called on their big big brother Rome, and Rome came in, and uh, under uh, Lucius Mummius in 146 B.C., Corinth was defeated and was completely destroyed. All of the citizens were either killed or enslaved. So that was the end of the ancient city of Corinth. And it was of the ancient city of Corinth that the proverb was coined uh, about the Corinthians being the uh, epitome of immorality so that uh, the term for sexual immorality, the sort of the slang term for sexual immorality was to Corinthianize. So that was their reputation in the ancient uh, city before it was founded a second time and reestablished by Julius Caesar in 44 B.C. as a Roman colony. And all indications of the Roman colony were that, that the same dynamics were found at that time. And so the basic culture of Corinth was pretty much the same as it was in the, in the ancient city. There was, uh, in the ancient city, it was said that there were a thousand uh, temple prostitutes at the Temple of Athens. So that was uh, just one sign of what the city was like and the kind of background and what was culturally accepted and the culturally accepted behavior patterns in Corinth at the time that, that Paul shows up. Now, as a seaport town, as a seaport town, it had all of this uh, commerce coming. So it was a trade city, and money always attracts money. And so it was a place, after uh, 44 B.C., it was a place where uh, people quickly came in order to establish themselves and to seek their fortune. And so it rapidly became a center the center point, and it was the uh, capital of the senatorial province of Achaia, which was the southern part of Greece. And by the second century A.D., a hundred years from the time that we're studying it, it became the largest uh, city in terms of population in Greece. Now, we read in in, uh, Acts 18.1 that after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. So on the overhead here, we have a map tracing Paul's second missionary journey. He left from Syria. He comes across, uh, retraced his steps, the the main cities he hit during the first missionary journeys at Derbe, uh, Iconium, and Antioch of of, uh, uh, in Turkey here in Asia. Then he goes to Troas, crosses over to Philippi, and then came down the uh, Greek peninsula to Athens and then crossed over to Greece. And then he will leave. He stays about a year and a half in Corinth before he leaves to go to Ephesus and then return back to Jerusalem. We read here in verse 1 that after these things he left Athens and went to Corinth. And there we have a few pictures here that I picked up that give us an insight as to what archaeology has discovered. Now this is a stoa. There was a, this is the stoa that was discovered in Athens, and there was one very similar to it in Corinth. This is the marketplace, and you have this long building with this portico in front that's uh, held up with all these pillars, and you have all these porches where they would have all the merchants gather with all their wares, and they would have various booths out there. And so this was the uh, uh, main shopping area, sort of the uh, galleria of the uh, ancient world. 
where everybody came to buy and sell. Here's some, a picture of some ruins of the Temple of Aphrodite up on the Acrocorinth and some of the other, uh, just the ruins of some of the other buildings. And this shows the main area of town and what's left of it today. And then this is a picture of the Bema. Now, we all know about the Bema because the reference, the judgment seat of Christ is referred to the Bema seat of Christ, and this is where the, the uh, proconsul would come out and hold court. And this is where his, his, uh, uh, dia, his chair would be established up here, and this is where he would take his, his seat and hear various uh, disputes and resolve them. So that gives you a little bit of a visual idea of what the area was like, or at least what's left of it today. In verse 2 we read that Paul found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and he came to them. Now, verse 3 says, And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. So this was Paul's way of supporting himself initially. He had left Timothy and Silas behind in Athens, or excuse me, back up in uh, uh, Thessalonica, and so until they came to help support him, he had to uh, work to support himself. So that's where we get the phrase being a tent maker. And this is, uh, sometimes has to occur when pastors are with small churches or in a country church or getting a church started where they have to have a, a skill or they have to have some ability to work to support themselves until the church is large enough to support the pastor. And as soon as, what we see here is as soon as uh, Timothy shows up and they go to work, then Paul quits working and he's able to devote himself full time to the ministry. Now, the arrival of Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth is a evidence of the ethnic mix of the city. We know from looking at, 1 Corinth, at Acts 18 that there's a number of different people here whose names signify their, um, their background. Aquila, Priscilla, and Crispus are all Jews, but they have Latin names. Then there are also several Romans mentioned here, Fortunatus, Quartus, Gaius, uh, Titius Justus, and uh, then there are others that bear Greek names, Stephanus, Achaicus, and Erastus. So there's quite a cultural mix in Corinth. It's much like what we would see in Los Angeles, New York, Houston, Chicago, any major uh, cosmopolitan city of today, and certainly all of that was true of Corinth. So everywhere Paul went, he was going to have visual reminders of the pagan religions around them. A couple of years ago, there was a uh, uh, exhibit at the uh, art museum in Worcester that I went up to uh, look at, and there was tile floors from Syria in many of the uh, homes and from the marketplace and things of that nature. And it was fascinating to think about the fact that these same kinds of tile floors were, were seen everywhere that the Apostle Paul, any time he went into a building, there were these tile floors, and what was pictured in these tile floors were all the gods and goddesses of the ancient world. So we think today, so often we get this idea that they lived in this sort of pristine world, and it was, um, you know, there might have been a few evidences of, of, um, of uh, 
paganism around, but mostly you look and we see from the remains, we see the columns and we see the, 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 the stone structures, but we don't realize that they were painted. And the floors, they had these tile mosaic floors everywhere they went. And, those, and the, the, the paintings on the walls, the mosaics on the floor, all portrayed the gods and goddesses. So it's much worse than anything that we probably would see, or at least as bad as going to many of the movies today where we're constantly hit with the, the thinking of the cosmic system and the relative, moral relativism and secularism of our day. They were blasted with this every time they turned around. If they went to the grocery store, they were walking on uh, tile floors that had uh, portraits of Zeus and Apollo and, and Aphrodite. And if they looked on the walls, there were scenes from Greek mythology all around them. So everywhere they went, they are being visually accosted with the pagan ideas of their culture. So don't get the idea that this is some sort of uh, pristine situation. It must have been so much easier for uh, Paul in his day to confront his culture because look at the success he had. It's uh, just as bad, just as evil, and he was faced with all the same kinds of problems in his culture as we're faced with in ours. Probably, uh, he probably had more to deal with because at least we've got a residual uh, Judeo-Christian uh, ethic that's the basis of our culture, and he didn't even have that to deal with. So it's in an extremely difficult situation. And there's, and having just come back from Ukraine. And reflecting on my previous trips over to the former Soviet Union, there's nothing more difficult than going in and trying to teach the Bible to people who never heard of Joseph, never heard of Daniel, never heard of Paul, never heard of Peter, and have absolutely no frame of reference, don't know any of the books of the Bible, and you have to, have to try to teach them when they have no frame of reference. And that is uh, extremely difficult. And this time, when I was over there, I didn't have to deal with that so much because most of the people that, that I was teaching had been under the ministry of Jim Myers for some time, so they were pretty well established. In fact, the leadership classes and the uh, seminary classes that I was teaching in the morning uh, were, were really well established. He has taught, uh, they've taught first and first year Greek, and they're halfway into second year Greek with most of these students, and uh, they've taught them uh, church history, and they taught taught them some basic uh, courses on theology proper and soteriology and pneumatology. So they are well grounded. So that, <clears throat> by contrast, I was able to accomplish a lot more in my teaching this time than I was before simply because the people had a frame of reference. They had, they had learned much more than, than many of the folks that I had taught in, in, in previous trips. So I can just imagine what it was like for Paul and Timothy and Silas to be going into this purely pagan culture that has no concept whatsoever of the Old Testament, of God, of, of any of the uh, prophets of the Old Testament, and now they have to start from scratch communicating the gospel. So it's, it's quite a challenge. So he began by supporting himself, and then he followed his standard operating procedure, and he went to the a synagogue. He was going to start with somebody, at least, who had a frame of reference in the Old Testament. And so he went to the Jew first and then to the Greek, and I think that's a general principle Paul followed. And incidentally, that's one reason why I think Matthew was written before the other Gospels, is because it was written first to the, for the Jew first. 
And uh, that's a difficult assumption to prove and goes against most modern scholarship. But most conservatives that I'm running into these days are, are opting for Matthew as being written first for a number of reasons. Anyway, Paul is reasoning in the synagogue. So he would go into the synagogue and he would get an opportunity to stand up and he would go through Old Testament scriptures in order to demonstrate that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies related to the coming of the Messiah. And he was trying to persuade Jews and Greeks, that is, Gentiles. Often we find the term Greeks, but what, we're, but what the um, text is really emphasizing is Gentiles. So this would be Gentile converts or proselytes who had uh, joined the Jewish synagogue. But I want you to notice the verb persuade. It is the Greek word pytho, and patho has the idea of, of uh, convincing someone of the truth. And in some passages, it is used in almost a synonym for faith, that in order to have faith, you have to first be persuaded of the truth of something. It is a word that relates to the intellect. It relates to thinking, that you don't put your brain in neutral to be a Christian. You don't just, you know, too many people have that idea of religion today, is that <clears throat> religion is just something that is personal, something subjective, and, and it's something that works for you. And so you just find whatever it is that works for you, and if that's Buddhism or if that's Hinduism or, or if that's um, you know, drugs or whatever it is, that's great. But, but don't, uh, don't worry about uh, trying to demonstrate its truth uh, intellectually. But that's not the approach of the Apostle Paul. He is, this is a strong word showing that he's presenting evidence and rational arguments for the truth of Christianity and the identity of Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. In verse 5 we read, But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word. So now that his assistants are there who can work in order to provide the financial support for the ministry, Paul is able to devote his time full-time to the ministry of the Word. Now, this is a very important concept for the support of ministry. And one of the things that, that I personally became challenged with in my time over with uh, Jim this year is the importance of missions and supporting these missionaries. One of the things that we chatted about some while we were over there is what has happened to the number of missionaries that have gone out from the United States uh, in the last uh, 10 or 15 years. After World War II, many servicemen, I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of servicemen, came back from their time in, in Europe and their time in Asia, their time in India or Australia. And during that time, during World War II, I think that hundreds of thousands of servicemen were saved. For example, one of the commanders, I can't remember his, the names of these men right now, but one of the commanders of one of the bombers that went in with the Doolittle Raid that bombed Japan uh, early in 1942 uh, crashed after the attack when they flew over Japan. He was shot down and when he crashed over in Korea. They picked him up. The Japs picked him up. And he spent the rest of the war in a Japanese uh, POW camp, which was not one of the most pleasant experiences you can imagine. And during that time... Someone witnessed to him, and he trusted the Lord and became a believer. But he 
had before that developed a tremendous amount of anger and bitterness and resentment, of course, towards his Japanese captives. Well, as he was confronted with the truth of God's word, he realized that he had to deal with that, and he could not uh, respond to his captors in that kind of, with that kind of mental attitude, so he confessed his sin, moved on, came back to the U.S., went to seminary, and then went back to Japan as a missionary. Well, of course, he had an unusual testimony, and that made the papers in post-war Japan that this man who had been their enemy, who had been a prisoner of war, who had been treated so miserably by the Japanese, had returned in order to evangelize them. And one day there was a young uh, Japanese, former Japanese pilot from, from the war who was riding a subway, and somebody gave him a, you know, a flyer that this um, American was going to be speaking somewhere. And this uh, ja- ex-Japanese flyer looked at that, and he thought, well, isn't that interesting? Uh, and it sort of impressed him, so he decided to go and hear it. Now, this ex-Japanese flyer was, I think it was Fushida, and he was the leader of, um, of the bombers or, or the fighters that went into Pearl Harbor and attacked Pearl Harbor. And so he went to hear this American missionary and heard the gospel and trusted the Lord. And then several years later, uh, Fuchita came to the U.S. And while on a tour of the U.S., I think that in the early 50s, he even spoke at Baraka Church down in Houston. So that just shows the impact that the gospel can have on people and the importance of missionaries. And we are losing missionaries by the uh, boatload right now because so many of these World War II-era missionaries are retiring off the field, and I think we've lost something like 80% of our uh, missionaries in the last 15 years. And there needs to be a real challenge to people to uh, become missionaries. That's part of the function of a church is to send out missionaries. It's part of the church function of believers is to go on the mission field. And that is part of the function and exercise of whatever their spiritual gift is. Now, if that's not an area where you have a spiritual gift, then you don't go there. But missionaries need all kinds of folks, not just people teaching the Bible. They need logistical support as well. And uh, it's vital to send out missionaries. That's a function of a client nation. And part of the reason God has blessed this nation is because of believers who are less concerned with their personal comfort, less concerned with their personal security and taking care of their retirement plans and their, and, uh, their business advance and everything else and are willing to focus on what the gospel task is, and that is to go to all the nations and take the gospel. And so we need to be in strong support of those who are out there on the front lines of battle on the mission field, people like uh, Jim Myers and Ralph LaRosa and many of the others that we support from here. But this, this should be a priority, and so often we don't emphasize that enough, and so people don't realize the importance of missionaries and the importance of supporting these people. And so many of them are in places where they are, have given up uh, all of the things that we just take for granted. Now, it was interesting on this trip how westernized uh, Kiev has become in the last year and a half. I mean, a couple of years ago when I went over there to Kazakhstan, I was talking with Jim, and they, we were talking about all of the different things that they could not get or didn't have access to. And usually when I go over there, he loves root beer, so I always take him a couple of six-packs of root beer. I'm trying to figure out some way to get Haagen-Dazs over there, but I haven't figured that, 
haven't figured out how to how to keep that that cold on that 13-hour plane trip. But uh, he um, when we got over there this time. They didn't even have diet uh, soft drinks when we were over there a year ago, and I found some. Of course, I've discovered that he's not a shopper, and I'm a sort. Of, I, I tend to get out and root around. I found a lot of stuff. He's been in Kiev for six years, and I found stuff he didn't even know was available in Kiev. So you just have to. Sort of get out there, get out, run around the streets a little bit, go in the shops and uh, bicker with people, and find, you can find stuff. But they've become very westernized now, so he's got, you know, you can get Diet Coke, which in Europe they call Coke Light. Uh, you can get Diet Coke, and you can get uh, a number of other things now. I took, had to take him some extra crunchy peanut butter because he loves uh, extra crunchy peanut butter. Now the Ukrainians are developing their own peanut butter. But it doesn't quite taste like Peter Pan or Jiffy or Skippy or whatever your favorite brand is. It's it's also interesting. You get over there and you drink you drink the milk or the uh, eat the butter, and that all has a different flavor because the cows are eating different grass, they're getting different nutrients, so that affects the flavor of, of all those things. But what was interesting was to go into the grocery store and buy chickens, and the chicken had a great flavor, and you pay probably the equivalent of about uh, maybe 50 or 60 cents a pound for this chicken, which is less than we pay here, not as less than you pay down in Texas. In Texas, you normally get chicken for about 25 cents a pound, but I guess they don't raise a lot of chickens in New England. And um, over there, the it um, uh, was about 50 or 60 cents, but you got to wonder, why did it taste so good? It's because they don't have this mass-produced chickens in these hen houses like we do here. This is all free-range stuff that we're paying $10 a pound for here to get free-range chicken, and that's what they have normally over there. So uh, the chicken all had a had a good flavor. But it was uh, it's just something we need to pay attention to and, and think about. And one idea that Jim had is is in, in churches like ours that aren't necessarily large enough to pump a lot of money into a to a particular missionary, that one thing that that uh, some uh, some uh, churches do is they create a box where people can bring stuff that um, you know, like Orville Redenbacher popcorn and Jiffy peanut butter and stuff like that. That uh, every time the box gets full, you send it over to the missionary. Just you know, little uh, goodies for that they can enjoy and uh, take some of the edge off of living in a foreign culture. So maybe that's something that we can uh, we can think about doing. It almost smacks of the old missionary barrels. I don't know if anybody around here has been, been in churches long enough where they used to have these missionary barrels, and people would come in, they would get rid of all their used clothes and hand-me-downs, which I always thought was terrible. I mean, you got somebody on the mission field, you ought to be sending them your best, not your, not your cast-offs that you don't want anymore. So um, we're not going to allow anything like that to happen. But um, I think we need to pay attention to what it's like and what these people go through and uh, really pay attention to developing more support for them. So this is what takes place here in Acts 18. Silas and Timothy come in to provide the logistical grace support for the Apostle Paul, and now he's able not to be distracted by his everyday cares. He doesn't have to worry about cooking his meals. And these are things we don't think about. But having just gone through some of this, you get over there and you're in a strange culture. You don't... uh, you go to the grocery store and you can't read the labels. Uh, I mean, I'm getting to where I can read the Russian alphabet, but that doesn't mean you can understand what the words are. So you, you, how did they get food? How did they cook their food? Who took the time to prepare their meals for them? Who cleaned house for them? All of these things 
that we don't ever think about, well, that's one of the things that I'm sure Silas and Timothy uh, took care of for Paul is some of that uh, everyday domestic, uh, those domestic chores so that Paul could focus on what was important and what only Paul could do as an apostle. So he devoted himself now uh, primarily to teaching the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, anytime you start teaching the truth, there is going to be a reaction. And there was a reaction in the synagogue there, and this is described in verse 6. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your heads. I am clean. From now on I shall go to the Gentiles. I want you to notice that when he says this, he's not saying, Oh, your blood be upon your own heads. I'm clean. This isn't this kind of sweet, sanctimonious garbage you get from most pastors and ministers. I, I, just, I, I don't know what it is. If it's seminaries, they teach them how to talk a certain way, how to have a certain attitude or what it is, but, but you don't see that kind of attitude in the Apostle Paul. I mean, he, he really challenges them here and, and confronts them with their own rejection of the truth and uh, makes some very strong statements against them. And so he leaves them, and now he is going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And now he does a very clever thing, which resulted in producing a mixed ethnic church in Corinth. And part of the reason, and, and this is part of the reason why the congregation ends up getting so screwed up eventually, but here we see the sovereignty of God at work, because if it weren't for this screwed up congregation with all of the problems that Paul had to deal with, we would, be, uh, we would not have this epistle, which answers many questions about many different issues that uh, people are constantly raising questions about today. So in verse 7 we read, He departed from there and went to the house of a certain man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God, whose house just happened to be next door to the synagogue. My, my, my. Just happened to be next door to the synagogue. So Paul's not going to go to the other side of town. He's going to, first of all, uh, challenge the Jews with their rebellion. Then he's going to go right next door and hang out his shingle so that he's going to continue to rub their nose in their rejection of the truth. And then in verse 8, we're told that Crispus, who's the leader, that is, he's the one who's been elected as the leader or president of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all of his household. So his whole family becomes saved. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard about that, they were believing and being baptized. So Paul now begins to have an impact among the Corinthians. It takes a while. People have to think about the gospel a little bit. You don't just see automatic response. Even if people are positive, they have to stop and they have to think and they have to be persuaded of the truth of the gospel. And so as things progress, now more and more are believing. Several in the synagogue have believed and many more Gentiles are believing and trusting Christ. And, of course, this has a, has a very negative, uh, creates a negative reaction among the synagogue. Now, here we see another little insight into Paul because apparently even though Paul is very strong and even though Paul knows a lot of doctrine, there's still a sense when you're faced with opposition, there's still something inside that causes you to be a little bit concerned and a little bit fearful. And He's had threats made against his life before, and so God personally comforts him in a night vision. Now, this is not normal operating procedure. As I looked at this passage 
again this morning, I thought what I need to do is go through all of the all of the people in the Bible that have had visions, and it's very few. This is not God's normal way of communicating to people, even to prophets and apostles. This is not the only way revelation was given, but there are a few occasions in the Scripture when God specifically appears in a vision to certain individuals. And here he comforts Paul and says, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. So apparently... Paul had been physically threatened on many occasions and that there were threats against his life. So God says he's going to protect you. And God says, I have many people in this city. In other words, there are many people here who are positive, who are going to respond to the gospel, and you will definitely have a successful ministry here. So in verse 11, we're told that Paul settled there for a year and six months. Now, that's a lot of time, and he communicated a tremendous amount of doctrine in that time, especially when we get into... This epistle will realize how much he seems to be saying, well, look, I taught you this before. Why haven't you figured it out yet? So apparently he covered the entire realm of doctrine during those uh, 18 months. But that created a hostility among the Jews. And in verse 12 we're told, But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. So apparently they're frustrated in their ability to to assassinate him or bring a personal attack against him, so they decide to go before the uh, law courts of Rome. So the question here is whether or not Christianity would be legitimate in the eyes of Rome. You see, in, the, in, in Roman religion, by this time they're worshiping the emperor, worshiping Caesar, and all other religions had to also worship Caesar. So it didn't matter if you were worshiping Zeus or uh, Apollo or... Aphrodite or whoever you, whatever religious system you bought into, as long as you also worship Caesar. And uh, except for the Jews, and the Jews were monotheists. And so the Jews had continuously resisted any idea of worshiping the emperor. And so finally, Judaism as a monotheistic religion had been legalized. And they had been given a special uh, dispensation from Rome not to worship Caesar. And that goes all the way back to the Maccabean Revolt in the 2nd century B.C. Now, what happens here is they bring this charge that Christianity can't be covered by that dispensation because it wasn't really, it wasn't Judaism. It wasn't part of Jews. So they go to Gallio and try to convince him that uh, uh, he needs to condemn what Paul is doing. Now, we know about Gallio from extra-biblical literature that he was proconsul until 53, 54 B.C., and so we can plug this into an early stage of about probably 51 B.C. So this is their, their uh, challenge in verse 15. They say, but if there are questions about he, um, or excuse me, verse 12, but they, they bring him before the judgment seat, and he says in verse 13, this man, they're saying this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And here they're saying contrary to the Roman law. In verse 14, when Paul was about to open his mouth, so there's sometimes when it's better just to keep your mouth shut and let somebody else think about it a few minutes. Uh, when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or of a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable 
for me to put up with you. Well, there also seems to be a sense of a little anti-Semitism here from Gallio. It would be reasonable for me to put up with you, but if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I'm unwilling to be a judge of these matters. So he throws the whole thing out of court. He doesn't want to recognize that what Paul is teaching is in any way different or distinct from Judaism, and so he dismisses the whole thing. Now, as a result of this, the Jews, uh, because of the anti-Semitic environment here, the Jews are going to come into attack, and either out of, and we're not sure what the motivation here in verse verse 16 is, but they're driven away from the judgment seat, that is the Bema seat, the picture we saw earlier, and uh, in in, um, frustration... They took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue. Now, this Sosthenes is um, succeeded Crispus as the president of the synagogue. So now they take a hold of, the, of his successor, and they take him outside, and they start beating him up in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio just ignored the whole, the whole proceeding. Now, that tells us the basic story of the founding of the church in Corinth. And it has a, uh, quite a history. And as we get into the epistle, I want to just review some of the characteristics that we'll discover in the Corinthian epistle. First of all, nothing much more could happen to a church than happens to them. They have divisions. They have flagrant sexual immorality in the church. They're plagued with uh, uh, open divorce. Some guy looks across the uh, church, sees a sweet young thing, so he divorces his wife and goes and marries a girl across, a, across the church. They have um, uh, idolatry. They're still going into the temples and eating meat sacrificed to idols, and then they have legalists who are in reaction to that. They are taking the spiritual gifts and making an issue out of them as if that makes them spiritually mature, and their whole misunderstanding and distortion of the spiritual gifts is because of their... Uh, what was emphasized in the pagan religions. So they brought all of this religious baggage with them from their uh, pagan past, and that is causing them to misunderstand and misinterpret what the Scriptures are teaching. And besides that, they, they have various other problems going on. So there's not much that, that is going on here, that, uh, and there's not much else that you could discover bad in a church than what's happening in Corinth. They're just... They're just in a lot of trouble. It would be a great place for a brand-new pastor to go, which is pretty much what happened with um, in Corinth. Secondly, we read that there are internal divisions. In 111, it mentions internal divisions and contentions, which are developed even more in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, where Paul says that, that you're still carnal, envying, strife, and divisions. They are... Some are saying, well, we follow Paul. Others are saying that they follow Apollos. So there's a real challenge to Paul's leadership. There's a lack of authority orientation. Uh, they develop various uh, cliques and fan clubs in the church uh, following different uh, theological fads or personalities. And that problem is just as much real today in many churches as it was then. Third thing we see is that fornication, uh, they had immorality there in 5.1. And a type of immorality that wasn't even typical among the pagan Gentiles. It, was a, uh, it wasn't technically incest, but it certainly involved a type of sexual immorality that even the pagan Corinthians, who just about bought into everything, that it just offended them as well. 
And in the local church, they were just saying, well, you know, God's going to take care of him and privacy of the believers, so we're just going to let God deal with him. And, and Paul says, no, you can't. Once it reaches certain immorality, certain behaviors reach a certain level where they are even offensive to the unbelievers around and it's publicly known, then you have to deal with it. You can't act as if God uh, approves or accepts that sort of behavior. Uh, point number four in chapter 6 they justified this. In chapter 6, verse 13, they justified this with a slogan. The slogan was that just as food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, sex was just like food. If you have a physical craving for food, go satisfied. If you have a physical craving for sex, go satisfied. It really doesn't matter. So that's what they meant by their slogan, food for the stomach and stomach for food, just a euphemism for um, uh, sexual license. And then fifth, in chapter 6, verse 4, they were having lawsuits against one another. They got upset with another member in church. They were dragging them before the secular court in order to solve the problem. And this is one of the uh, worst things you can do. It may be that you've been offended. It may be that you are the aggrieved party, completely innocent. But we are not to go uh, try to handle our problems within the local church, outside the church, no matter how bad it is. And that's going to deal with the whole doctrine of forgiveness and what forgiveness is. 7, chapter 11 deals with getting drunk in the communion service, which of course means they were not drinking grape juice. And they were just having a great time coming together and having a, a time of gluttony and drunkenness at the Lord's table. So they are misusing and abusing uh, grace in chapters 8 through 10. Uh, chapter 11, excuse me, I got ahead of myself. Chapter 11 is where they were getting drunk in the communion service and then point eight, there was chaos in the spiritual gifts because everyone was claiming to have the more obvious gifts, the more exciting gifts such as speaking in tongues and miracles as opposed to the uh, everyday ordinary believer's gifts that are the real uh, bulwark of the local church such as service and administration and evangelism and teaching. And then the ninth characteristic is there's one major doctrinal problem and that is the denial of the physical resurrection. So there's also theological apostasy in the church. Now, what else could be going wrong? You've got theological apostasy. You've got heresy. You've got people uh, fighting each other. It's divided. Uh, just uh, they're, they're reacting against Paul and his authority. How is he going to solve these problems? Is he going to say, well, you guys all need to go to the Christian counselor. Let's all find out. Who, who the best biblical counselor is around, and we'll just get everybody, y'all are a bunch of neurotics and psychotics, we're going to um, get you into group therapy and solve our problems. We're going to find out what you've done wrong in your past. Let, let, let's see, see what, what kind of mistakes your parents made, and maybe we can uh, dredge up some failures in your past. Let's, let's look at your family dynamics. I'm sure that's, that's partly to bring... That is not how Paul handles it. Paul addresses it from the viewpoint of spiritual knowledge. I want you to notice that uh, he completely rejects this kind of psychological, sociological approach, which is uh, endemic in modern Christianity, and he deals with every one of these problems from a doctrinal viewpoint. Look at verse, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 3. Here the problem was that they're taking everybody to court. They're mad at each other. They have this bitterness towards each other. They're reacting with uh, vengeance and, 
and a revenge motivation. Every time somebody offends them, they're, they're a hypersensitive and taking offense. And Paul starts off by saying, does any one of you, when he has a case, now he's not even questioning the legitimacy of the case. He's accepting the fact that you've been legitimately wronged. When he has a case against his neighbor, does any one of you dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? And then notice the solution. He says, don't you understand a basic point of doctrine? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? So why are you going to the world for your judgment? See, the solution isn't, let's figure out what the family dynamics are here. Let's figure out now, what did you do that offended Bill? And Bill, what did you do that offended him? Where did you learn this kind of behavior? He says, you have to understand a basic point of doctrine. And it starts off by understanding that believers are going to end up judging the world. And if the world is judged by you, you're not competent to constitute, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Furthermore, do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So he starts off going to the truth and dealing with doctrine and saying what you've got to do is change your thinking to align it with the truth of God's word. And, and he doesn't deal with this from any kind of uh, crazy sociological or psychobabble perspective. He focuses on doctrinal principles. Now, throughout this entire situation, Paul is going to address them as believers. And this is the most, one of the most important things we can understand as we approach 1 Corinthians is that the Corinthians, as screwed up as they were, as pagan as they were, as immoral as they were, as arrogant as they were, as divisive as they were, as apostate as they were, as carnal as they were, he always addresses them as believers. Notice, first of all, he addresses the epistle to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. He treats them as set apart, positionally sanctified uh, in Christ Jesus and called to be saints in chapter 1, verse 2. Second, he says, you, plural, you all were made rich in every way in him so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's in one verse, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. So they've received every spiritual blessing, just like the Ephesians. They have been made rich in every way in Him. They are all in Christ. Furthermore, in chapter 1, verse 9, he says, You were called into fellowship with His Son. You're called into fellowship with His Son is equivalent to being saved. They have all been uh, saved, and they're all believers. Furthermore, the fourth point is he calls them brothers and sisters in 110 and in 111. Twenty-four times Paul uses the plural of, of Adelphos, which is for brother. He uses the plural to describe the Corinthians. Twenty-four times. That means he views them as fellow believers and, and members of the body of Christ. Fifth, in chapter 3, verse 16, and in chapter 6, verse 19, he says that they, in the plural, all of them, are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and that's referring to each individual. Collectively, he refers to the fact that all of them are believers, and individually, they each, their bodies, are the temples of the Holy Spirit. And then, sixth, in chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, he says, You all were sanctified, you all were justified. So he treats them as if every one of them is a believer, and yet they are worse than 
are at least as bad as many carnal believers today that people think weren't really saved because obviously if they were saved, they would, they would live differently. Well, this is the background for uh, starting 1 Corinthians. And next week, we'll come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and we'll uh, begin with the doctrine of apostleship. And we will just briefly cover that because there will be many times in this epistle that we will develop a greater understanding of the role and the function of an apostle uh, in the first century of the church age. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you that you have given us such clear revelation in your word, that, that salvation is not based on who we are or what we do, that even when we continue to be uh, major failures in the Christian life, after salvation, that doesn't mean that we weren't saved or that we have lost our salvation. Salvation is based on what you have done, what Jesus Christ did on the cross in paying the penalty for our sins. So salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today as we continue this study of 1 Corinthians. Help us to understand how these vital truths apply to our lives today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.